we are looking for courage in the Christmas story this season because we need it. I need it anyway. I don't know about you. I could use a little bit more courage in my life. But the story of John the Baptist seems like a very weird place to look. John the Baptist, that's not a very Christmassy story. There are no pine trees and snow. There's no little kids or presents or barnyard animals. It's just a dude preaching a story in the desert. That's not a classic Christmas movie, if ever I've seen one. John's message of thunder and fire and judgment and spirit is not very Christmassy, right? Tis the season. That, that's, I haven't seen that in any of the Target ads or Walmart ads uh, on TV. That's, that's just not what we think of as a Christmas kind of message. And yet, this has been a reading at Advent for hundreds, if not thousands, of years, which is strange. Sometimes when you look at the history of the church, when you look at theology in the church, when you look at how people used to talk about Jesus, you realize just how much we don't know. For thousands of years, people have spoken, written, and who God is, and they have some really interesting things to say. You can hear about what people genuinely cared about and what people genuinely thought about who God was, and sometimes it's brilliant and incredible, amazing, and sometimes it's just weird. Uh, honestly, you look back at the history of the church and you're like, you guys are nuts. I don't understand how your culture has so dramatically twisted the way you understand the gospel. It's just, it's crazy. And then there are other times, and they're very uncomfortable, when you look and think, wow, oh, that's weird. And then you start to get the suspicion that maybe they're not weird, maybe I'm the weird one. Because the saints are sort of holding up a mirror to your culture and you start to really see yourself and the ways you've kind of gotten off track. My culture loves... Christmas. The American people, we love Christmas. That is unusual throughout the history of the church. And we love it. It is incredible. And Christmas for us is this wonderful season. It's not about greed and it's not about materialism, no matter what people tell you. People want to buy things, but not enough. I mean, the car companies are sad that it's not more about greed. People want to buy things so they can give things away. The Christmas season is about generosity for us. It's about gratitude for us, being grateful for the things that we have, being grateful for the things that we're going to receive. The Christmas story is about being decent to one another and compassion and just, I don't know, growing a little bit more patient. The Christmas season is about taking a little time and spending more time with people we care about. It's the one time of year Americans think we should slow down. It's amazing. doesn't mean that we do. We think we should slow down. And we spend time with people we love, and we actually make our kids a priority for a little while. That's a beautiful thing. That's an amazing message. I'm not slamming our culture here. That's really good stuff. It just has very little to do with the actual message of Christmas. Because the actual message of Christmas is very straightforward. The King has come. Hallelujah. The king will come. Amen. And that's John's message. That's all John has to say. He says it over and over and over and over again. So this might not feel like a Christmas message, but this is a Christmas message. The king is on his way. The king is coming. Get ready. That's what John says. Say this with me. He is on his way. He is on his way. 
One more time. He is on his way. That is a message that takes courage to proclaim. It's a message that takes courage to listen to, to heed, and to follow. So turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. That's the version of the story we're reading today. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. I love that I hear the rustling of pages on Sunday. It's just a good thing. Luke 3, starting at verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor in Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip was ruler of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, Lysanias, ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then should we do? In reply he said to them, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him, And what should we do? He said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats and false accusations, and be satisfied with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah. John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water. But one, is, one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork it is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he, he proclaimed the good news to the people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hmm. He is on his way. Amen. That really doesn't feel like a Christmas message, but I promise you, it is. But before we really get to it, Luke gives us an awful lot of details that you don't necessarily care about. Luke, the gospel writer, huge nerd. Luke, the pastor. Huge nerd. There is a good reason, perhaps, that I share this man's name. He cares deeply, very deeply, about these sorts of names and details. When Tiberius was Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was in charge of the local government because he was in charge of the National Guard, when Herod and his brother Phil were governors of different parts of Israel, when 
Lucian was the mayor of Abilene when Annas was high priest and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was also high priest. That's when the word of God came to John the Baptist. It's stuff like this that lets us say that the Bible is a historically reliable document. The Bible does not really care about history in the same way that you and I care about history. The Bible cares about something else. It wants to tell us about who God is, who we are, and why that matters, the gospel. But the Bible does that by talking a lot about history. This is not pious fiction. Those were real people. They actually existed. They lived in Jerusalem at that time or in Rome at that time. They had those roles, and they overlapped. That's why we can guess some dates about John and Jesus. We know these people from history textbooks at the time. John the Baptist also appears in history textbooks at the time. He's not just a big deal in the Bible. He's a big deal in history. A lot of people followed John. A lot of people loved his message. His message that seems so foreign and strange and uncomfortable to you and me. Why? What are we supposed to get out of a message like this? Confidence? Fear? Some kind of joyful expectation? He is on his way. Confidence. John the Baptist, man, confident. I don't think I've seen anyone quite as confident as John the Baptist. He knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he needs to say, and he does not stop saying it. If you and I met someone as confident as John, who seems to have no hint of self-doubt or fear or, or really any hesitation at all, I think we'd be really uncomfortable. People who believe something this strongly are weird. You and I, in our time, we don't believe anything that strongly. We live in a time that is really uncomfortable with confidence, really uncomfortable with people making strong statements of any kind. We don't really know who we are. We live in a time of confusion, and we don't really know what truth is, let alone what the truth is. And John comes just blazing a trail through the desert, thundering in the wilderness. This is true. He is on his way. And John just keeps saying it. He says it to all sorts of people in ways that will definitely get him into trouble. People who have a little bit of money and might not want to give it away. People who have power and might be abusing it. And those people, they come out because they've heard there's this baptism for repentance, this baptism for forgiveness of sins. They're really excited about what John has to say. And when they get there, John says, you're a bunch of snakes. Now, I got to say, you guys come in, and instead of, hi, I lead off with, you're a bunch of snakes. <laughs> That's a certain kind of confidence I have, one in our relationship, that you're going to keep listening, and also in my ability to actually know the truth. You're, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come. You people, he says, you're not running to God, you're running away from something. You're not coming to me for baptism and repentance and forgiveness. You're running from the wrath that is on his way, like snakes run from fire. And the response of the people is, okay, yeah, what do we need to do? That's, I mean, it's a weird, res you're a bunch of snakes. Nailed me. <laughs> Absolutely. What, what, should, what should I do? And John goes, this is exactly what you need to do. He calls each and every person out, nails them. That's amazing, the kind of confidence that John has. And then more dangerous people come out, like tax collectors. Now, if you have a corrupt IRS agent, and you're standing in a room full of people, do you really want to say, you're a thief and you've got to stop stealing? 
who's going to get audited next? Who's going to get thrown in jail next? When soldiers come and they want to be baptized, even they want to be, there's something about John that draws people into the desert. Soldiers are a little bit more like police officers in our time. Now, the, the best police officer on his best day, well-trained in self-control, good man, good woman, is not someone you should mess with or insult or antagonize. That is a bad decision. But corrupt cops are definitely not people to antagonize. People who are bending the law, who are abusing and extorting people, who are bigots. These are not people who will take kindly to being called snakes in a room full of people, but definitely not be, hey, you need to stop stealing from people. You need to stop shaking people down for money and framing them for crimes they didn't commit. Be grateful for your paycheck. Who's going to disappear next? It's John. And yet, John doesn't flinch ever. This is actually what's going to get him killed in verses we don't bother reading at this moment because there's too many verses. John will keep telling the truth, keep proclaiming the coming of the king, and eventually he does make some powerful people angry. He does make some people feel exposed and they don't respond well, and they kill him. And yet when you read that story, you get the impression that John doesn't care, that he almost expected to die because the world can't handle a message like, he is on his way. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that the world is going to respond really badly. When I read the story of John, it is difficult for me to talk about courage. I'm not sure that John is courageous, honestly. He's confident. He's confident to an extreme. But courage to me seems like something that only exists in people who could feel otherwise. Or the absence of courage or the potential for the absence of courage is what you need in order to become courageous. You don't call someone brave who never feels fear. You call that guy crazy. Someone is brave because they acutely feel fear and they go, yeah, and then they go in the same direction anyway. They ignore that capacity for fear. You people are brave. I can say that with confidence. There are some people in this room who are extraordinarily courageous. And I hear story after story after story, and hopefully you guys are getting into some of the Bible studies we've got going and listening to each other's stories. Because it takes courage to love people in your apartment complex. It takes courage to love people in your neighborhood or to love family members who are just really broken and need the gospel. And you all are doing it, and it's not easy, and it's not some beautiful, hard, I mean, it's a hard thing to be a witness in people's lives in the hopes that they might somehow see Jesus in the way that you love them. Some of you kept showing up to work at a job you don't love and you do your best. You work harder at it than other people because you want people to see somehow in you something different. And every now and again you get a chance to talk about the gospel and you don't do it well and you do it anyway. You stumble through it and you feel on the back end stupid and wrong and miserable. But something about that to me feels extremely courageous because you don't know what you're doing. But John, John doesn't feel courageous. He just feels extraordinarily confident. And yet we know that John is human. So he must have that capacity for fear somewhere. So what's the difference between you and me and John? The end of verse 2. The word of God came upon him, and it changes who he is. 
The word of God comes upon him the same way it comes upon Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and Hosea and Amos. Prophets of old, dangerous human beings as far as power is concerned because they know who God is, they know what God has to say, and they don't swerve from the left or the right of it. They tell the truth every single time. They get killed for it and they keep on telling the truth. The difference between you and me and John is that John believes the word of God. John knows the word of God, and that word has wrestled deep inside of him. So if you came up to John and said, I'm amazed by you. I mean, you're, you're this inspiration to me. I, you're so brave. John would look at you and say, nah, I'm not brave. I'm right. I'm not brave. I'm right. The king is on his way. I'm just telling the truth. And so if somebody kills me for it, who cares? The king is on his way. There will come a day when I'm vindicated. There will come a day. I know that my Redeemer lives and that I will stand upon this earth. He is on his way. If you genuinely start to accept the word of God, if you really believe it, not just with your brain, but if it starts to inhabit every little bit of you, you'll become so brave, you won't even know that you're brave. Confidence. He is on his way. Fear. Now, I think it's fair to say that John speaks confidently about something that should terrify us. The way John talks about the gospel, it's weird that it keeps being called good news, that people keep listening, that they're still so engaged. So there's a chance maybe we're missing something in this. But you and I, as 21st century Christians, we hear something like this with judgment and danger and fire and wrath. And you, ooh, yeah. Can we turn the page to a different story about Jesus being a baby or Jesus being really nice? I don't, I don't love stories like this. They make me uncomfortable. We're not comfortable with conflict. We live in a society that will burn people down on Twitter or Yelp. But no one has a face-to-face conversation about how you offended me and made me angry and can we fix this. John is not like us. John just confronts things head on. And we should listen to him. We should not become afraid to hear about fear. We should listen and ask the question, so who exactly, who should be afraid? Because if you pay attention to John's message, he'll tell you. Who should be afraid? Sin, first and foremost, sin should be terrified of the one who is on his way. Because he is separating fruitful from unfruitful, the axe is at the root of the tree, separating wheat from chaff, the pitchfork is in his hand. He is ready right here, right now, to separate these things from the good things inside of them. Wheat, the little berry that grows on a piece of grass, is covered in something called chaff. It's like a papery skin that is inedible and sticks in your teeth. It's horrible. If you've eaten popcorn and you had that little like shard of something stuck in your teeth, Chaff. If you've eaten peanuts and that little red skin on a peanut, chaff. If you've ever seen a tomatillo with the skin around the outside of it, chaff. Nobody eats that. You throw that away. It is waste, but it clings really tightly to the good thing inside. Sin has a way of clinging really tightly to us. Really tightly to us. It is good news. Good news to anyone who hates sin that fear is part of John's message. That sin has every reason to be afraid because... Well, there's this harvest coming, and you are the wheat, and God has every intention of saving you and getting rid of the stuff that clings so tightly to us, the stuff that tends to make us afraid that we will someday be thrown away. That stuff actually gets removed, and we find ourselves suddenly set free. Sin has a reason to be afraid. People who love sin 
have a good reason to be afraid because they're going to lose this thing that they love. People who love darkness, the light is coming. It's a tragic thing for people who love darkness. For those people in this story who look at John and say, I don't want to give away one of my coats. I don't want to feed the hungry. I don't care that people are hungry. I'm not wealthy. I just have a little bit more money than other people. I don't care about people in my community. It doesn't matter to me. Those people should be afraid. Those tax collectors who are making a lot of money cheating their neighbors, and they say, ooh, I don't want to give that up. It's very clear what they need to give up. I just don't want to give that up. I like the status quo. Those corrupt cops, those thieves and bigots, those folks who are operating and doing very, very well, those people have good reason to be afraid because things are going to change. Things are going to be stripped away and thrown into fire, which is good news for all of us who hate the way things are right now. If you look at the news, for instance, just as an example, and the sexual harassment stuff that is everywhere all of the time, and you begin to wonder if any human being is safe from something like this, because it's so widespread, you also realize that some people are not actually being punished. They're just being publicly shamed. Nothing's actually going to happen. That some people aren't even being publicly shamed. They're not being found out. There are people out there who are continuing to abuse and oppress people who are getting away with it. They're going to lie low for the time being, and then this will go away. And they'll go right back to the way things were, ruining the lives of men and women. There are people standing up and accusing folks right now, not because they've done things, but because it's a good way to get your name in the paper. There are people who have actually been beaten up and abused, but there are some folks who see a good way to get revenge on someone they just don't like. How can we sort all of this out? Thank God this is not up to the American justice system to figure out. Thank God it's not up to the media to publicly shame the right people. That there is a God. That He is on His way. And that those people who are operating in darkness have good reason to be afraid. That's good news. Good news to people who are really used to bad news. Judgment is good news when repentance is an option. Notice the way people respond. Every tree not bearing fruit will be thrown into the fire. What do we need to do? Bear fruit. What does that mean? And then he gives very specific examples of what it means to bear fruit. And so we think of this as good news. There's a Christmas story that you and I are probably familiar with called A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Story of Ebenezer Scrooge and ghosts. Four ghosts that come and meet him and show him what life is like beyond death for people like him. They show him who he was, who he is, and who he will be if nothing changes. And yet you and I don't think of that as a ghost story. We don't think of that as a scary story. And the reason we don't think of it as a scary story is all along the way, the goal is to scare Scrooge into changing his life. So Scrooge is consistently terrified, but the reader is not terrified. And at the very end of the story, we see redemption. The punchline of the story of A Christmas Carol is this. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man, as the good old city knew. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him, but he left them laugh. For he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people did not have their fill of laughter. And knowing that such people would be blind anyway, his own heart laughed. And that was quite enough for him. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. Now, if you 
actually know that story at the very beginning, the description of Scrooge could not be more different than this description. He's this terrible, miserly man who makes all his money off the misery and destruction of others. Something changes in him because he realizes that he is on his way, that the king is on his way, and that there's good reason to be afraid if you love sin. Third group of people who should be afraid uh, that John talks about. People who don't really want to bear fruit, who are uninterested in change, uninterested in repentance. Repentance is a word that means turning your whole life around, changing things, uh, completely reorienting who you are. And that is kind of something that John or Luke references. It's not clear. With a quote from Isaiah, right? Uh, the, that mountains will be made low, the low places will be filled in, the crooked will be made straight, the rough ways will be turned into a smooth road. Work is involved in this. It's a, an ancient proclamation uh, about the emperor coming. This would happen with, even before Rome. When the king is on his way to town, you send someone in advance to tell you, hey, the king is on his way. Get the place ready. You don't want to be surprised by this. When the king comes, you're going to want to have dusted your home. You're going to want the, the place to look nice. You're going to want to paint and make sure everything is in order because the king is coming and he will see. Make sure that the road looks really good on the way in so the king has a nice, smooth travel so that he can get here as quickly as possible so he has the easiest possible ride. Make the high places low and the low places high. You might have noticed that I have some experience in this area. I have destroyed my own front yard. And uh, that's not because I really believe in reading scripture literally. It's because we have flood irrigation. And sometimes you have to make high places low and fill in the low places and, and level things out. And it is backbreaking work. I'm just going to tell you, what, what is casually referenced here is not easy to do. Lowering mountains and filling in valleys takes a lot of work. I thought this would be done by now. It is not done by now. And... I know I'm going to have to keep working on it. My wife definitely thought it was going to be done by now, which is why she has that wry smile on her face. Sometimes your yard looks terrible and then you embarrass yourself, but all for a sermon illustration. So it's well, well worth it. And so, right, so mountains need to be made low and valleys need to be filled in. But what ends up happening is you have to keep working. You keep looking around and realizing there are other areas that need to be kind of filled in and, and changed so that this life-giving water can sink deeply into this kind of soil so that the king can have a nice smooth ride into town. He is on his way. Joyful expectation. That seems, I think, the least likely part of this message that John has. And yet, people keep responding in weird ways. You're a bunch of snakes. What should we do? Give things up. Stop cheating people. And people were filled with this joyful expectation. It's verse 15. Uh, the word there in Greek is uh, prostakeo, uh, to be filled with expectation, to be filled with longing or excitement, to be on pins and needles, to be at the edge of your seat, to be just vibrating the way a kid vibrates on a you know, Christmas morning when there's presents right there and you're just about to open. To be ready, absolutely ready for the coming of the king. People are wondering if it's John. They're so excited about what's going on. And John's really clear. Look, it's not me, but he is coming. And then John's message, the one who's coming is going to separate wheat from chaff. It's this terrible, violent thing. And that is described as good news. And then we begin to realize just how much people who, who are used to bad news, how much they long for good news, how much we should be longing for the coming of the king. 
Even tax collectors, right, that even, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Even corrupt cops come to be baptized. People want forgiveness and they want repentance. No one is excluded from John's baptism. No one is excluded from John's message. No one is unredeemable. Everyone has this opportunity. And that's amazing because tax collectors in Judaism, it's over. The instant you become a tax collector, your family disowns you. Your community hates you. You're looked at alongside thieves and murderers. You are not allowed to be a witness in a courtroom. You're not allowed to be a judge on any case. You're not allowed to go into people's homes. If you do, you pollute their home. They have to clean it afterward. You can't go back to your own hometown because you're going to make it dirty. That is a tax collector. These are people who are known for stealing from their friends and neighbors their whole life long, and that's actually built into the system. So that an honest tax collector is something that doesn't exist because an honest tax collector will go out of business. It is built on dishonesty. And tax collectors come to John because they desperately want to change. Desperately want to change. And their own people won't offer them that kind of change. But this prophet of God knows who God is. And so they get baptized. And soldiers get baptized. It's no wonder that this movement becomes so popular so quickly. And it all has to do with that quote from Isaiah. So it it begins with a voice crying out in the wilderness. But actually that's from Isaiah 40 and it starts at verse 3. The beginning of Isaiah 40 goes like this. Comfort, O comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that her penalty has been paid, that she has received double for all of her sins. That this is a message not of violence and judgment, but of comfort, of a God who loved you in the beginning, a God who is slowly and steadily getting you back. Isaiah 40, that that very beginning, is this pivot point in Isaiah, where it moves from being a book that talks about the violence and anger of God, about the faithlessness of His people, to being this moment where God starts talking about how much He loves His people, how much He's going to do to get them back, how even though they don't deserve it yet, and they won't deserve it ever, He loves them and is going to come and set things right. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and tell her that it's over, that she's gotten double for all of her sins. Comfort, oh comfort my people. That is why John is looked at as good news because he's announcing the coming of the king. He's announcing the reign of the God of Israel who is finally, finally, finally going to set things right. Finally, finally, finally going to forgive people who repent. Restore those who are in need, those who are valleys who need to be filled up. He will, in fact, humble the mountains, but fill those in desperate need of being filled. See, the reason this is good news, the reason we should be filled with joyful expectation, you are the wheat. And a farmer really wants wheat. That's the whole point of farming. You don't throw wheat into a fire, you get rid of the chaff, but you are desperate to get wheat into your granary. That's the whole point of this, that he's here and he's ready to do some really good sorting, to separate his people from their sins, to restore righteousness and justice on this earth. And that's why this is a message of good news. He is on his way. He is on his way. He is on his way. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord and Father, we love you. And we know that we are loved by you. That you do not have a message for us of fear this Christmas, but a message of joyful expectation. That we would become people who long for you, O oh God. And yet people who are absolutely confident that you're coming. That we would gain the courage to speak a word like this. And the courage to really believe it. Thank you and praise you.
oh Lord Jesus, and where we are in desperate need of being filled up, we pray, God, that you would humble mountains in order to do it. Where we are, God, crooked and off path, where things are rough, that you would smooth them out. We pray, oh Lord, that you would forgive us, that you would set us free, that you would help us to come to understand the gospel yet again. In the name of Jesus, amen.